Welcome to Museum Chat Live, a fairly regular podcast series brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Mellon Canal Center. We're bringing you all things to do with St. Catharines, our history, and what's going on in our museum. Today, you're listening to... Kathleen Powell, curator of the St. Catharines Museum and supervisor of historical services. Adrian Petrie, visitor services coordinator at the St. Catharines Museum. And Sarah Nixon, public programmer here at the museum. We're recording today's podcast at the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center, which we acknowledge is part of the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples and adjacent to the lands of the Six Nations of the Grand River. Welcome back to our special podcast subseries devoted to our Books and Brews book club here at the museum. We're reading The Diviners by Margaret Lawrence this month. The book is an interesting combination of many threads of Canadian history, culture, feminism, and authorship. On today's podcast, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the history that appears in the book. On today's podcast, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the history that appears in the book, especially the many references to the Red River Rebellion and the Northwest Rebellion and the execution of Métis leader Louis Riel. But first, a few words about our upcoming programs. We are very excited to partner with Craft Arts Market, a lovely boutique store on St. Paul Street in downtown St. Catharines for a special limited offering of reproduced prints of fire insurance maps from the museum's collection. 19th century fire insurance maps were highly specialized and very valuable to fire insurance underwriters for understanding the physical characteristics and occupancy type of a structure. Today, they are extremely valuable to historians for understanding the past makeup of the community. Their bright colors and meticulously drawn graphics have a special quality about them that branches the historical and the artistic that we just couldn't keep to ourselves. Prints are on sale currently at the Craft Arts Market and our very own Merritt's Mercantile Gift Shop for a very limited run. Check out the prints on our blog at stcatherinesmuseumblog.com. If you're in my situation, in the middle of researching your family history... It can be difficult to know how to plan and look after the information that you find. For example, I've just learned that my paternal grandfather and his many, many siblings may not have gone by their actual birth names, making some of the oral histories in my family a little more confusing. Luckily for me, I have a bit of training and professional experience on what to do next. We realize, though, that not everyone might be able to dig themselves out from under the mountain of family information and materials. So we're offering four two-hour workshops to help you figure out how to organize and care for the information and materials in your own family collections. The Family History Workshops are presented by St. Catharines Museum staff. Registration is $10 per session, but space is limited. Our first session is October 28th and is all about photographs, so register today by calling the museum at 905-984-8880. Here's a synopsis of Margaret Lawrence's The Diviners. In The Diviners, Morag Gunn, a middle-aged writer who lives in a farmhouse on the Canadian prairies, struggles to understand the loneliness of her 18-year-old daughter. With unusual wit and depth, Morag recognizes that she needs solitude and work as much as she needs the love of her family. Before we get into talking about some of the history that is in the book, I'd like to talk briefly about the book's initial reception when it was first released in 1974. 
The diviners came into controversy in Ontario in the 1970s, ostensibly for salty language in the eloquent curses of the colorful, visionary nuisance groundskeeper Christy Logan, and for its championing of single motherhood in the figure of Morag, who leaves her stable marriage to a Toronto English professor to become a writer and chooses to conceive a child out of wedlock in uncertain economic circumstances. Some critics detect a more powerful covert anxiety in the controversy over the positive portrait of an interracial sexual liaison between Scottish-descended Moreg and the Métis songwriter Jules Tonnerre. The controversy caused Margaret Lawrence much anguish, even though she was strongly supported by her publisher Jack McClelland and the Writers' Union of Canada. Check out the footnotes to this podcast for some video and radio interviews with Margaret Lawrence. I also wanted to ask Kathleen about her thoughts about the book since she read The Diviners in high school. Yes, I had to read this book in high school. Um, I have to say I wasn't a huge fan of the book when I was in high school, Um, but uh, reading it now, I kind of have a little bit of a different perspective, uh, a more historical perspective on things, which I think adds a little bit of depth to the story. So when I was in high school, of course, you have no idea half of the time who Louis Riel is, who the Métis are, what their, what the uh, whole connection is to the history of Canada, you know, and all of the depth and layers. There's so many layers in the story. You don't really get that in high school. You, all you can think about is, oh my God, this book is super long and I'm never getting through it. Um, and so that was kind of my impression in high school, but things have changed uh, as far as my impression goes today. It's definitely a much better read the second time around. I wanted to ask you because in the in one of the CBC uh, news clips about the book being banned in one of the school boards in Ontario, they she talks about um, she was defending the book is that it shouldn't be taught in grade nine, it should only be taught in a grade 11, 12 or 13 level. Well, I just wanted to know what grade you read it in. I can't remember actually. It was probably grade nine, but I don't remember. <laughs> oh, I feel sorry for grade nine Kathleen. <laughs> I had a hard time with this book, and I'm an adult, so yeah. reading it in grade nine, I couldn't imagine would be a lot of... It's so heavy. It's very heavy, and lots of story to right. it. History has a really important place for identity in this book. Moreg is often in search of her Scottish roots, as is her daughter peak in the search of her Métis roots. The search is the vehicle which Margaret Lawrence uses to express her thoughts on historical events, the largest being the Red River Rebellion and the Northwest Rebellion, and the other events surrounding Louis Riel. First, I'm going to ask Sarah to give us the briefest of histories of Louis Riel, because you could, you know, we could talk about Louis Riel all day, Um, the Red River Rebellion and the Northwest Rebellion. So, the Red River Rebellion takes us back to a very newly formed Dominion of Canada in the 1860s. During negotiations between Canada and the Hudson's Bay Company over the transfer of Rupert's land to expand the country, as is typical in Canadian history, no one consulted the Indigenous peoples or the Métis populations of the area. Even before the official transfer of land took place, surveyors were already sectioning up land for agricultural development, and this was quite scary for the Métis people who traditionally hunted and lived on the land. So, concerned with their rights and this transfer of power, and the Métis people rallied around Louis Riel, who became kind of the leader of the Métis cause. 
Riel formed a provisional government and outlined the rights and protections the Métis people wanted as conditions for entering the new dominion. These rights included a right to land, right to fish and hunt on that land, as well as having representation in their government. Initially, Sir John A. Macdonald agreed to these terms that they called the Métis List of Rights, and this was more about practicality than actually caring at this point. And a lot of the Canadian expansionists refused to accept the terms. Violence ensued on the Métis territory and eventually led to the Métis trial and execution of Thomas Scott, who was a young Irish Protestant, and this was at the orders of Riel. After being forced to flee to the United States in 1870 to escape his persecution for executing Thomas Scott, Riel eventually returned to lead his people once more in the Northwest Rebellion of 1885, which was taking place in what we now know as Saskatchewan. The Métis had once again been threatened, their land and their people, this time by Canadian expansion of the railroad, which was heading westward. So once again, there is a rebellion. This time, however, Louis Riel was caught. He was arrested, tried, and executed for his leadership. And now, because we won't get to discuss this particular point in our book club, I'd like to discuss how the study and presentation of Louis Riel's life and execution has changed throughout Canadian history. For our podcast today, we're going to talk a little bit about the historiography around Louis Riel. What is historiography, Kathy? <laughs> so, historiography is essentially the study of the study of history. So, <laughs> it's basically taking a look at all of the sources that exist and how um, one source versus another takes a look at uh, different parts of history in different ways. Um, so interestingly, for this podcast, I did what all good history people do, and I googled Louis Riel. <laughs> um, and then I also uh, looked up Louis Riel on uh, the Brock Library's uh, super search to see what would come up. How much has been written about Louis Riel? And on the Brock Library super search, 1,519 results on documents, either books, periodicals, uh, reviews, whatever, uh, about Louis Riel. So there's no question that he is one of the most uh, written about historical figures in uh, Canadian story. Uh, his story is all over the place. People see him in totally different ways depending on where you are and what part of the country you're in and who's writing the story, whose angle you're writing the story from. So it's really interesting to think about Louis Riel from the perspective of um, historiography. So looking at it as uh, how sources looked at him differently in different places. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So I guess traditionally one of the main attributes of Riel is his um, fanaticism, but also which can sometimes be interpreted or translated into him being, uh, him ha him having um, a mental illness of some kind. Um, and even at the time of his trial, he was examined by doctors and they found nothing, um, which would have, if they had found something, they that would have had stopped his execution. Um, but uh, they found nothing at the time. But yet many um, 
many historians have still sort of uh, painted him as a as a fanatical with some sort of mental illness about him. Um, and I'm wondering if we can talk about that and how that's changed. Um, I think it's an interesting angle about Louis Riel. I don't think that we really think about that as much. Um, I, I think it's kind of almost been a resurgence in that part of his story that in originally I don't think that was like the focus. I always felt like the focus was always on uh, his grand leadership and um, you know the murder of Thomas Scott and all of this stuff, murder or execution, depending on um, who's writing the, the history um, and all of that kind of thing. So I actually found it really interesting to go back and look at it from this whole perspective of people thought he was crazy. Um, but then at the same time, you wonder if that whole story about people thinking he was crazy came about because that was the defense his lawyers chose to take. So it mm. became much more prominent because they felt like that was their only line of defense. You know, we need to tell everyone he's crazy because otherwise he's going to be executed. And of course, Louis Riel himself didn't want that defense. He didn't want people to think he was crazy because then they would think that his cause was crazy. Uh, and he obviously didn't want them to think that the cause of the Métis people was crazy. Uh, so he was totally against the defense that his supporters were paying for. And those supporters were right-wing religious Catholics who were uh, trying to, uh, to have, his, uh, have him exonerated and to, uh, to win the, the trial and not have him be executed, right? Right. That's interesting, Kathy. I think we might want to consider, like, how was mental illness treated at that time, right? This is the 1880s. Uh, so it would be kind of cool to study what mental illness was thought of at the time and how people looked at it. And I wonder if, to me, when I started to read about Louis Riel in in those terms, I wondered if it was a way to also, like, maybe discredit his cause, by saying, oh, he is a madman, he is crazy. Is that a way to discredit the cause of the Métis people at this time? I think it's an interesting argument, but I don't think that was what the government wanted because uh, the defense was using that as their um, line of defense to get him off, mm -hmm. not to have him executed, whereas the government wanted him to be executed, mm -hmm. right? So if he was considered crazy, the government wouldn't have wouldn't have been able to right. uh, to kind of use him as a an example of a bad a bad man in Canadian history colonial history essentially. what's really right. con what's really confusing about this particular individual historic historical individual is that he didn't really clear it up himself he was quite a different style of personality and character um, and in his poetry and in his journals he wrote quite spiritually and had you know, claimed direct connections with uh, God and was extremely religious and so and and lived that outwardly. And I think that's uh, at the time and for historians to deal with um, is uh, is difficult because it's so different from what people might be used to. And so he's still a, he's still a, kind of a weird guy uh, and he didn't help himself that way. I think looking at the historical record after his death. Whereas someone like, for example, I guess Harriet Tubman, um, anything she said, she was pretty straightforward. And like, that's how she kind of like, that's how she's recorded as being. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, he didn't even try to correct the record. He was accused of being 
having a mental illness or something like that and and it was so it, you know his answers were prayers and 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 religious answers and stuff like that so it, he didn't help himself out like maybe some other historical characters did and i think the interpretation of the sources that are available for him in his own word are open to so many different types of interpretation that we get all these different um we get all these different streams of real history written by different people with different agendas, whether colonial or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so much scholarly work has been done, but no one's really ever sorted it out into, and we never will because he's gone. We can't talk to him. Um, he might not even answer if we asked him. Um, <laughs> but this is where we, this is where I think we get Riel presented as whoever the historian wants to present him as, because mm-hmm. there's no definitive answer, definitive answer. Mm-hmm. So we get myth- mythology, we get Maggie Singens, uh, who's a popular historian who has written the bestseller on uh, bestseller biography on on Riel calls him the Hamlet of Canadian history. Um, other people, uh, especially in the Métis community, refer to him as the Martin Luther King of the Métis, um, and Métis people specifically refer to him as Uncle Louis. So um, there's a ton of different ways to box Riel up and sell him uh, and his story and uh, his personality. So I came across a whole bunch. Yeah. The Red River Patriot, the traitor, the martyr, the go-between, or the mystic slash madman. Wow! Just in one you know, the one title. That I did for this, uh, for this particular podcast. Those are multiple titles. Yeah, those oh, are okay. all different okay. ones, but those are ones I've right. come across yeah. of ways to box in yeah. uh, Louis Riel's story. Yeah, I think the the biggest themes though are maybe not the um, the mental illness theme, but you're right, the traitor theme versus the martyr theme, um, mm-hmm. or the or a visionary versus you know executioner of of uh, Scott. Mm-hmm. So um, so in my mind, I imagine that I imagined before we started this podcast, I imagined that earlier writings in the 20th century, in the early 20th century, would all be Riel the traitor. McDonald, the nation builder. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure if that's true, and I don't have anything to back that up other than what Maggie Sigan said in in an interview with Sheila Rogers on the next chapter on CBC, which we'll link to the podcast um, in our footnotes. Um, and she was saying that in her popular history, where she was saying that Riel was more than just these titles, that the academic community attacked her. And uh, for a number of reasons. She wrote a popular history, so you're going to get some, maybe some negative peer reviews on not being as academic as you could be. But I think she was saying that all these pale-faced authors were upset that she didn't call him a traitor. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's only like 15 years ago. So I'm not sure where the, if it, if it's as balanced as I originally thought and sort of, we're sort of in more enlightened now that we refer we understand that he was a complex character and he's not just a traitor um or he's not a traitor at all um and how those different historians treat him yeah i think it just comes down to what angle you're looking at and it's the same with almost anything um and you know i think we've kind of covered some of this over many podcast episodes that there's no such thing as as a completely neutral story anywhere there's always a the writer always brings an angle to it even when you try not to it's there and so 
It's a tough one because it really does depend on what angle. If it was John A. Macdonald writing this, the story would be completely different from, uh, you know, Gabriel Dumont, who is his partner uh, in crime in the Northwest Rebellion. Sorry, I shouldn't say partner in crime because that's not really what it is. But it, Sidekick, I guess. Or... Gabriel Dumont, who was actually the leader of the Métis that's in right. yeah. uh, Saskatchewan, what became Saskatchewan, uh, and who recruited Louis Riel to come and help their cause. Yeah. You know, he's writing the story completely differently from... Um, John A. Macdonald or, you know, the Orange Order in Ontario in 1875 is going to write Louis mm-hmm. Riel's story completely differently. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I find it so fascinating that they chose the defense that they chose. This whole defense of, of insanity is fascinating to me that it's his own guys that choose this, mm-hmm. you know, his own defenders that choose this defense for him when he obviously doesn't want it. So even if you were just writing about the trial, the defense lawyers are writing a totally different story than Louis Riel himself is writing, mm-hmm. and then, then the judge is writing, and that the jury is writing. So it's just a, so many layers of what the story could be, what the I, history I wonder how he felt about that. I know we're getting a little off topic, but like he ran for parliament, so he was a public figure. He understood public life. But I wonder at one point he might if he might have regretted giving his life over to all these different interest groups because Quebecois Catholics were actively trying to undermine McDonald's government and the McDonald was using Riel as a political pawn basically as well to muster support for um, uh, moving west uh, in Ontario um, and finding all the money for the railway. So like... Uh, like at, at some point Riel stopped being himself like a person and was this like entity that was being torn in 15 different ways I know that's a sidetrack but. but I think at some point he actually embraced that because mm-hmm. there is some some um, part of his history that talks about his time in Montana uh, before he between the time of the Red River Rebellion and the Northwest Rebellion he lived in Montana he got married he had a, a couple of children and um during that time, he actually had a religious epiphany. Yeah. And his religious epiphany was that his God-given uh, mission was to represent his peoples. And he almost became kind of this messianic-like figure. Yeah. And that was his own kind of epiphany. And so maybe he transcended this whole right. thing himself and was totally happy with um, being used as the the figurehead for the entire Métis people and their mm. cause. But maybe not so much as... It for sure. Right. To the point that he wasn't willing to uh, do anything to defend himself in the trial from being... Because, you know, in the end, this the high treason um, charge was going to lead to execution if he was found guilty. And it was a pretty big show trial, so it was pretty obvious he was going to be found guilty. He must have known it, and yet he didn't really do anything to defend himself in a way that was significantly going to make a difference. So I wonder if if then, if uh, my understanding of Riel as a, a pawn to just to be used in McDonald's political game is a product of colonial histories then that I've been educated in, because usually it's the stories like Riel wasn't a bad guy or a good guy. He was just there, and, and McDonald's the hero at the end of it. and uh, Or at least that's the story that I've been educated on. And whereas, you know, someone educated in a different way was like, 
maybe his execution was inevitable and it's a part of him being this messianic character sure. that he, he took on. Yeah, yeah. Um, rather than McDonald being the winner, actually, Riel was the winner in the end because he martyred himself. Right. But whatever it is, those thoughts are a product of a particular history written in a particular way. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if Margaret Lawrence had those ideas as well because um, she uses this particular... Just for our, our book club readers, you know, there are, <laughs> not that everyone in, is listening in podcast land is on the book club, but um, Margaret Lawrence used uh, a, a couple of relationships with characters to define the relationship between the Métis people and colonial governments, but also um, her depiction of Métis characters is one of, I think, sympathy. Um, they're always depicted in hard luck situations. And uh, and it, where, you know, like their stories are ignored in the press. And uh, there's a couple of other examples. But um, she, I think, is obviously, her message is obviously, this isn't the whole story. And that we haven't heard from the Métis side in the 70s when she wrote the book. We haven't heard from the Métis side. Or at least the Métis people in the 70s that she knew since she grew up in Manitoba um, at that time. So she maybe they felt their their side hadn't been told yet. Well, I think it hadn't, and I think it's... Uh, we're living in a, a time um, as regards to Indigenous history and in the Indigenous story that um, it's very much more prominent, and um, the Métis story is a lot more prominent than it would have been in the 1970s, for sure. And uh, so I think... We, can, we almost see it differently ourselves where we are in our current place than what Margaret Lawrence would have seen it because uh, we have seen that um, the Métis story is more prominent, they're, they're being much more recognized for the contribution that they've made as First Peoples of, uh, in Canada, and um, Margaret Lawrence would still not have been there yet. Yeah. Because the, the story of Canadian history hadn't gotten there yet, yeah. <laughs> essentially. Right. So this discussion really makes me want to watch the Heritage Minute that exists on Louis Riel. And in having this discussion, I really want to see how he's depicted in the video. Well, lucky for you, Sarah, the Heritage Minute was done by Canvas History in 2013. And uh, I'll link to it in the footnotes to this podcast. You're the best. So you can go on to the uh, footnotes, just like everybody else. Thanks, Adrian. (laughs) Or you can just Google it. (laughs) You're welcome. So I think at the end, uh, if we talk, if we go back and we think a little bit about the um, the way Louis Riel's story has been told in Canadian history, I think there's no question that he is um, controversial, um, really, really super interesting. Uh, his story has almost like tentacles that can uh, reach out to so many different places in our uh, the story of Canada's development and. Um, it's just a really interesting part of our history that can help to tell the bigger story of what was happening in the the rest of the uh, the country at the same time. So it's a really great, uh, great kind of micro history that we can learn from to get the macro history. <laughs> if that's being a little bit over the top historian for you. <laughs> <laughs> So if you're looking for a St. Catherine's connection to all of this, since most of this takes in place in Western Canada, um, there is a, a nice little uh, 
St. Catherine's connection in that uh, a soldier from St. Catherine's fought in the Northwest Rebellion. Um, and his name was Private Watson. And there is a memorial to him just outside City Hall. And if you missed our Monuments podcast, you can hear a little bit about a little bit more about Private Watson's memorial um, and a little bit more about his story in that episode of our podcast, which was the previous episode. But I'm not going to talk about it here because you have to go to that episode. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks very much, everybody, for talking about Riel. So thanks, everybody, for talking about Riel. I think um, we learned a little bit about, especially about, like, how his story is told. But uh, from there, we'll see everybody, everybody, at our book club discussion on October 17th here at the museum at 6 o'clock. Books and Brews. Woo! Thanks. This episode of Museum Chat Live was produced by Adrian Petrie, Sarah Nixon, and Kathleen Powell. Museum Chat Live is brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and the City of St. Catharines. Here's a synopsis of Margaret Lawrence's The Diviners. In The Divine... Oh no, I didn't ask how to pronounce Morag. Morag Gun. Morag Gun, okay. But no, no, see there's two Gs, so you have to... Cons- gun. You have to release the consonant. Morag Gun. Morag Gun. You want to put that part in about me saying release the consonant? <laughs> release the consonant. Release the consonant! <laughs> <laughs> it's like release the kraken. <laughs> uh, I gotta say Visionary nuisance groundskeeper Christy Logan. And for its championing of... And for its championing... And for its championing... <laughs> Get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Championing.